Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. I hope you're all having a great time over Christmas, getting ready for a new year and what an epic it's going to be. And in the meantime, as promised, uh, a bonus for you. Uh, this is the live Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special at King's Place, which we all gathered for shortly before Christmas. Now, we don't usually record these live shows. They, of course, are stream live, and that's it. But because it was Christmas, great effort was, you know, speakers everywhere, mics all over the place. We recorded it to get this one over to you. And for these Christmas specials, we kind of reflect on the year as a whole and dare to look ahead to 2024. We make our predictions both on the live stream and in the hall. You'll get the sense of it as we go along. But there is one kind of thing I have to say is that the mic that we used to record was pretty hopeless at picking up the questions live in the hall. Obviously, the ones on the live stream I read out and you can hear them. So you won't get some of the brilliant, brilliant audience participation that is the key to making these live shows work. But hopefully from my responses, you will kind of get the essence of the question. And it'll give you a feel anyway of this live show at the end of an epic year with so much more to come in 2024. So I hope you enjoy it. And here's to a happy new year to all and everyone in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. And we're going to get together very soon in 2024. In the meantime, here's Rock and Roll Politics live at King's Place. Take care. See you all soon. Bye. Hello, welcome, welcome, welcome. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed for coming out tonight for an evening of rock and roll politics. Rock and roll politics, the festive special. For those of you who've been to the festive special before, it's no different to any of the other shows. No, it is a bit. It is a bit. You see, today we're going to look back to the whole of 2023 make sense of all the insane contours that we have been navigating for the last 12 months. And then we're going to look ahead to an election year, 2024. What could be more festive than that? So, first of all, I've got to say hello to all those who are on the live stream from around the world. Um, There are many hundreds watching out there. And indeed, the total watching is much bigger than, say, those who go mistakenly to the Royal Albert Hall to watch events. Um, Much bigger than that. And let me just, if it's all right with all of you in the stream and in the hall, guide you through uh, what we're going to do in our time uh, together. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. And because it is the festive special, it's a bit... I mean, usually our predictions change the course of history, as we all know. Uh, This is a bit more fun, but only a bit. Um, And then we're going to, in the first half, well, I'm going to reflect a bit on why Rishi Sunak began 2023 miles behind in the polls and ends 2023 (laughs) miles behind in the polls. 
Uh, now, that will take some time. As you know, those of you who've kindly been before, we delve deep here. So we'll take a break at around midnight um, <laughs> once we've sorted that out. And then we will reflect on Labour and Keir Starmer and, and look at the extraordinary thing that we all have to do is to work out what someone will be like in power. And to do that, we'll obviously reflect on the current situation. But I thought I would contextualize that a bit. How much did we know? Parties very change, very rarely seize power from opposition. Um, and so how much did we know about Harold Wilson in 1964, obviously none of us were born then, so, but how much did we, you know, well, maybe some. Um, how much did we know about Margaret Thatcher before she became prime minister in 79? What about Blair in 97? How much compared with what then happened? Similarly with Cameron, they're the only ones really. And then I think we can contextualize a bit the enigma that is partly Keir Starmer, he's partly enigmatic. Um, so we'll do some of that in the second half. Then about four in the morning, I'll go, order, 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 and we can have our regular question time, a wider discussion on uh, various themes that are whirling around at the moment that we need to make sense of in this, our last gathering here at uh, King's Place this year. So that's what we're going to do. So let's begin with the prediction. Now, if it's okay with all of you in the hall, I'm going to ask those of you watching on stream to make your prediction now, please, when the prediction comes up, and then I'll read out your verdict at the beginning of the second half. And while you're doing that, I'll discuss it in the hall, and then we'll get the hall to predict. So this is your prediction uh, today. Uh, on stream, please put it up on the screen now and start voting for about three minutes, and then the question will go down, and we've got 10,000 people ready to count your <laughs> predictions. Um, and by the way, before we start, two things for those of you who are new to this. First of all, it's a prediction, not what you hope will happen, but what you predict will happen. This is an evening where we delve deep, and it's not a row, oh, you bastard, you want this to happen. You can watch that on BBC One Question Time every <laughs> Thursday evening. But the other thing is that for newcomers here tonight, probably, the, probably the, I don't know if there are any, um, I might ask in a minute. The prediction, it is newsmaking stuff, you know, the BBC, Sky are all out there. GB News got a panel of five right-wingers to analyze the vote. Um, but we're always wrong. So that's the other thing to bear in mind. So you start, don't vote in the hall yet. I'll set it up in the hall. But on stream, please, make your prediction now. And it's this. Will Nigel Farage be leader of the Conservative Party by 2030? Yes or no? Now, you get going on the uh, live stream. Here in the hall, a couple of minutes to... You all look ill, suddenly. <laughs> I, know, I don't know what's happened. The mood has changed completely. I was sort of feeling quite festive, and now it all feels kind of gloomy. So this is the scene, right, which you've got to decide before you make your prediction. Let's say it's a bit more kind of wacky than usual. I'll remind you of some of the predictions we have made in our time together in 2023 in a minute. So this is sort of the case for Farage becoming conservative leader at some point between now and 2030. Um, some of them are pretty 
obvious that the Tory party has moved to the right. Johnson was so terrified of Farage that he basically turned the Tories then into the Brexit party, expelled kind of one nation Tories like Rory Stewart, who has since lived in total obscurity ever since. <laughs> Um, and kind of wooed, basically, those who had been tempted by the Brexit party. And so it is in some ways a kind of natural fit for Farage. And for those of you who were at the Tory party conference in Manchester or witnessed images of it, it was, had, did have a kind of Roman decadence about it. And the image that defined it was Pretty Patel dancing with Nigel Farage with a kind of euphoria, you know, it really happened. Um, <laughs> and there was quite an electric charge in the room. And so on some levels, given the lack of charisma in the mainstream parties, you can see why and how it might happen. And I think something which made me think, God, maybe it will happen, is the Daily Mail reported when Farage was in the jungle, and this is the mad world we're living in, you know, appearing in the jungle, suddenly become leader of the opposition. You know, it's that sort of world. But his, they did an interview with his wife, Mrs. Farage, who is inevitably French. Um, <laughs> and she kept on going on about, uh, Nigel has got a very sexy bum. And um, apparently this bit of his anatomy was revealed in a shower scene in the jungle, a shower scene that now it seems to me is as significant as Hitchcock's shower scene <laughs> in Psycho, um, because it is apparently of such sexiness that you could imagine every single octogenarian female member of the Conservative Party melting at the prospect of being led by a figure of such kind of erotic electricity that he dances with Patel, he showers naked in the jungle. Oh, Nigel. And to be honest, all the octogenarian men who are members of the Tory party, they've all been secretly gay since they were 13. And they will too now fall in love with Nigel Farage, who Mrs. Farage has confirmed is incredibly sexy. So you can see it happening. There is also a narrative forming, which is quite a contortion, but nonetheless intensifying, that it is the right that has been betrayed by a bunch of sort of closet socialists in the Conservative Party. As you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg has described Rishi Sunak, I, I think the Prime Minister really is a socialist. Um, if Rishi Sunak's a socialist, Keir Starmer's a sort of Stalinist Marxist, um, Rishi Sunak is of the right. But there are a lot in the party buying a narrative. David Frost is another, you know, Lord Frosty Frost, he's the, the, a person who I wish was in the jungle and never returned ever, <laughs> has developed this thing, Brexit could have been so good if it hadn't been betrayed by a bunch of closet Remainers. I don't know who he's referring to, Boris Johnson himself, who negotiated it. Um, and this narrative is strong. And when and if the Tories lose, it will inevitably develop in opposition. And who better to articulate it 
Van Farage, who incidentally will come back, I've absolutely no doubt, to lead this reform party in the coming months. And as he does, he, he is a great communicator. He's one of the great communicators, and there aren't many. So that's the argument as to why it might happen. The argument why it might not is partly down to Farage. It's very interesting with him. Whenever he comes close to uh, power or to face the responsibility, the consequences of his own words, he runs a mile. So after the Brexit referendum, the day after, theoretically his biggest triumph, uh, he resigned as leader of UKIP. He didn't want to be involved in some complicated negotiation about trade deals and all the rest of it. He started hosting a show on LBC where people phoned up to say how marvellous he was. And that tends to be his instinct. Leader of the opposition is a post of great scrutiny, a relentless day in, day out scrutiny. And he's always cleverly avoided that. He's also never been an MP. When he stood, he's lost. Um, and he's been an MP in the European Parliament, but never at Westminster. And he's not in the Tory party. So it would involve a series of barriers, and yet it's not impossible. Now, those of you who have watched on the stream will have voted, and we will get your verdict after the interval in about four hours' time. But in the hall, please, the moment has come. Uh, so it's just a bit of fun. It doesn't change the course of history. But while we're in at the room together, we feel it might do. Uh, so how many of you predict, predict, remember, that Nigel Farage will be leader of the Conservatives by the end of this decade, 2030? How many of you think that will happen? Ah. And how many of you predict that will not happen? Wow, wow, a landslide. Right, on that basis, Farage will be leading the Tory party <laughs> by about 2026, on the record of our predictions. Um, soon, soon I should be worried, well, he's worried anyway about a thousand other things. Um, well, that's fascinating. Now, if you don't mind, please, the minority who, very small minority who predicted Farage would lead them. Would one of you mind saying why? Because it's always interesting to hear the minority view. If one of you would put your hand up and for the stream, and indeed I'm recording this for the podcast, um, yes, there's a hand uh, there. The mic is coming over. I think it would happen because he's just like more powerful than Rishi Sunak and more, has more of a goal to do than Rishi Sunak. And Rishi Sunak, I think, is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, yeah, he certainly has, he has the capacity to communicate. By the way, it's great to see young people here. It's an absolute myth that uh, my audience is on the older side. Uh, <laughs> by seeing you here, it reduces the average age to 90, which is fantastic. No, 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 we're all young and rocking. It's a rock and roll politics event. Um, he is one of the great. Communicate. I don't quite know how he does it, because he contradicts himself. Um, he left the Tory party when Thatcher was removed. He's an ultra-Thatcherite, yet appealed to the Red Wall. Um, he changed, you know, they had a ridiculous policy once about the NHS. He just 
said, I can't even remember having that policy. It is not our policy. You know, it's just, he gets away with all kinds of things that most people wouldn't, a bit like Johnson, actually, in that sense. Um, anyone else as to why he might? Yes, uh, in the middle uh, there, uh, we've got another one. S start speaking, and if the mic comes, great, or I'll um, repeat. I think the mic is coming. I would have said no, but watching Herr Brothers in the Netherlands has been around for decades, and watching him become Herr Milders, so everyone's thinking he's less extreme, and watching that same narrative be repeated with Nigel Farage makes me very concerned. Very interesting, yeah. And of course, you know, one of the big, big things, November 2024, are we going to see the return of Trump in America, which will have all kinds of implications and consequences. And we are living in a perverse world where every time he appears in a court case, his vote goes up. Um, it makes me want to sort of rob a bank and, uh, you know, suddenly become mayor of London. I mean, it's this, this sort of weird situation that we're in. I think there was one more, yeah, yeah, in the middle. Just start speaking and the mic will sort of, oh, it is coming. Hi. Um, they love him, as, as you said, the British Patel dance. But they, yeah. they love him. I mean, he was the most exciting thing. Sorry, this is the Conservative Party. Yes, well, not necessarily the, the wider electorate. Which voted for Liz Truss. And she's kind of a pale imitation of, I mean, he's not bonkers, or not, not overtly bonkers. Yeah, if he got a seat, and if he then stood, you're right, the party membership, as currently constituted, well, as I say, the, there will be a charge just over what his wife has said about him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is a party that voted for Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss. They didn't vote for Sunak, of course, one of his many problems. Um, and, and just a big landslide in here. I don't know what it was like in the stream where you all are outside in the world. Um, just one saying why you don't think this is going to happen, because we've heard some powerful arguments as to why it might. Yes, over here, uh, start speaking and the mic will come. Oh, it's coming, but just start speaking anyway, uh, if you don't mind. Thanks. So I think the, the, the biggest reason why I don't think it's going to happen, I mean, this is some very good ones, but the other big one is that tribalism will take hold. If Farage is going to lead the Brexit party into the election, then at a certain point, he will have to take on the Tories. The, you know, I mean, the Brexit party, uh, sorry, Brexit party. Good point. Thank you. Um, Richard Tice, who's currently leading it, has already said that they will be going up against the Tories. They're not going to be doing the deal they did last time, but they've been doing exactly in Labour's constituencies. And at a certain point, Farage, if he wants to lead that party, is going to have to make the choice as to whether he's going to take them on. And that will get nasty, and it will get brutal, particularly speaking those. And it will and leave... Yeah, it will leave a trail of quotes yes. about how he thinks the Conservative Party is a disaster area which will haunt him and torment him if he then tries to join us. Very good point. Well, thank you very much uh, for reflecting on all of uh, that. Now, just before we move on, I just wanted to remind you of some of the predictions at um, previous live shows. Um, no, it's all right because they haven't happened yet, so we don't know whether we're wrong or not. But at a recent one, you predicted a majority predicted that the election will be in October. But quite a big proportion of the hall and on the stream predicted it would be in January 2025. Now, um, I think that is wrong. I think it will be in October. But I just, 
May didn't come up much in our prediction. And I just wonder whether any of you think there might be an early election. Say, uh, let's take the boats. Rwanda, um, Sunak desperate, looking at the polls, 20 points behind. And he gets it through the Commons, but then the Lords start to play around with this policy. And even if he gets through that, it will go to the courts. So he said, right, it's, he'll do the Brexit trick. The people against the elites. Um, we're having a boats election. And by the way, although Starmer does not think this is the most likely scenario, he's certainly preparing for it. So do any of you predict a May election, just out of interest? Because we didn't cover that last time. Oh, quite a few hands. Who wants to speak about it? What about you in the second row there? Yeah. Just start speaking, because otherwise it's going to slow it. Oh, here comes the mic. It's sort of, thank you so much. You're going to get very fit for Christmas. Um. Well, I think it's precisely the reason you said about what's going to happen in Parliament. Um, and it's going to become untenable, I think, for this government to continue. Um, I just don't think if you see that can hold the party together because it's sort of so fractured in, in, into two wings. Right, OK. So you think on that basis there will be a May election. Well, I think, just for a bit of fun, do you mind if I ask for a vote? I mean, this is, I don't know what you do on Christmas Day, but in our house, this is all we do. We make, <laughs> this is the game we play, uh, kind of predictions, you know, about various elements of politics until... Uh, there's a row and then we all go home. That's our Christmas day. Um, how many of you predict there will be a May election, please? Because a lot of people put their hands up then. Oh, about, yeah, a few, a few, about, about a kind of fifth or sixth. Um, sorry? Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm having a look at you in the balcony as well. Oh, hi. I, sorry, I hadn't. Oh, very nice to see you. Um, yeah, okay. Well, look, you, you shout out from the balcony. Do you think there will be a May election? Don't wait for a mic. We'll be here for hours. Oh, yeah. oh just tell us why. Shout it out. Well, for very similar reasons to the day just now, really, yeah, so the Tories cannot hold it together for that long, sort of echoing the view heard over there. Okay, well, I'm really pleased you shouted out because, um, and please do in the, the balcony, uh, at any, well, not if it's anger, uh, just, you know. Um, but um, that neatly segues in my uh, reflections, if that's okay with all of you, because this is why I don't think it will happen and why he really can't do it. And we do have to go back to the beginning of the year to find out why he is trapped over the boats policy and Rwanda. Understandably, at the beginning of the year in British politics, it's high theatre. And already, I can tell you, Sunak, Starmer and all the other leaders are thinking about what they're going to say next month, the start of the year, the start of an election year. They all have to say something big to kick the year off. And all of um, Sunak's MPs were saying that the voters are really bothered about the boats, just about more than anything else, it's the boats. So if you remember, in January, Sunak made what he called his five priorities. Um, incidentally, a vivid example of his lack of political experience, because you don't make these things if you're not going to meet them. And he hasn't met most of them. And the one on the boats was stop the boats. Now, clearly, that was not going to happen this year. However, it's not going to happen next year or the year after. However, just imagine if his pledge was, he walks on in January, 25 points behind the polls, Tory MPs in anguish. 
We're going to stop a few of the boats. You know, it's no, it's no slogan. We, we're going to stop a few boats. And so he, there he was in front. By the way, isn't it odd, the, um, the graphics in number 10, it's, so, it's that sort of kind of kindergarten, this sort of stop the boats thing on a cheap bit of cardboard. But there it was, stop the boats. So inevitably, having felt he had to make that wholehearted commitment rather than say, I pledge to work night and day to stop five boats from, you know, so he's, he was trapped, stop the boats, stop the boats. So inevitably, this Rwanda policy becomes emblematic. And yet the seeds of this Rwanda policy go back to Boris Johnson. And that in itself should have rang alarm bells in Sunak. Because if you remember, this was first launched when Boris Johnson was trying to save his political life in number 10. And his then press secretary, Gito Harry, very naively briefed people that oh, Boris is going to make a speech on Friday um, as part of Operation Save Big Dog. Do you remember? <laughs> Operation Save, that went well. Um, <laughs> and sure enough, he did. He, he got hold of all his favorite ministers who owed him big favors and said, oh, no, 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 give me something to save my skin. And he, and he said to Gita, right, get hold of the Pritster, get hold of the Pritster, Priti Patel. It's, by the way, it's fascinating with Johnson. He can't call anyone by their actual name <laughs> um, because they become real. And if people became real, he would shrivel with fear and doubt. Um, so it all has to be at a safety. Get me the Pritster, get me the Pritster, Pritster, the Pritster. I, I, I need something to save big dog. And she told him about the Rwanda thing. Right, we'll do Rwanda. And he did. He made the speech on the Friday. He didn't contemplate the uh, legal loopholes which were exposed just in an incredible way by that court judgment a couple of weeks ago. So uh, that was the origin. Now, what Sunak was at the Treasury at the time, and he was dead against it. He was going, this is going to cost hundreds of millions of pounds. It's ridiculous. But he has become trapped with the same policy. So desperate now himself to appease the same wing of the party that Johnson was trying to appease with the original speech. It's very Johnson and names. I've just read, I don't recommend it, but I've just read Nadine Doris's book. <laughs> I knew that would get a laugh. But actually, on one level, it's quite interesting. Just as, you know, it's a sort of psychiatric kind of exercise. Of, <laughs> delving into layers of madness. Um, but one of the layers is the way he, she gets a load of exclusive interviews with him, and that is quite interesting. And they meet at his new house in the Cotswolds or wherever it is, and they meet at his office in London. But he too, I mean, she repeats what he says to her. But I can see again, he's building these barriers. He calls her, oh, oh, Nads, 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 what are you gonna have? Coffee, Nads, coffee, Nads, Nads, Nads. And then you read the quotes and she has to expand with her own thoughts of idolatry and more about Johnson because they are so hesitant and tentative, like he was actually at that uh, COVID inquiry a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, that's Johnson. So those were the seeds, the deeply flawed seeds of the Rwanda policy. But having said he's going to stop the boats, it has become totemic. And it's part of his political uh, ineptitude, frankly, that he's allowed it to become so totemic. But it was always going to play a big part because the right like it. But here is how he is 
trapped and why I don't think he can use it to call an election. See, of those who are opposed to this current version of the Rwanda policy, it includes, amongst many others on the right, his former immigration minister, Robert Jenrick. Now, how do you call an election saying, look, the elites are blocking this and the lords are blocking it, the unelected lords and the media and North London people who eat beetroot, um, they're <laughs> blocking it. Um, when there he is, as John Crace calls him, honest Bob Jenrick, leading the revolt. Um, it's, I'm told Robert Jenrick now, he's kind of become our Che Guevara figure. <laughs> this rebel um, with a cause. Apparently across Cuba, students have photos of Robert Jenrick <laughs> on their wall with his Marks and Spencer's jumper and his new short haircut. And they kind of worship him like the octogenarians are worshiping Nigel Farage naked in a shower. And, but I don't see how he frames an election message with all respect to you and you put the case brilliantly for going if those who oppose it are quite a few in his own party. And so he finds himself in a position where he, his only route, I think, is to ache and ache and pray that one bloody flight leaves for Rwanda before the general election. And if it costs another 450 million, so be it. I think if he, in number 10, they, I, I know they can have just one flight in the photo. I think they'll call a public holiday. Um, and, you know, the whole rolling news will be at the place where, you know, the airport is, where the flight's leaving, and pubs will be open around the clock while the flight leaves, and labor will be thrown into disarray because focus groups will say to Keir Starmer, Oh, God, Keir, they, they like it. They like the flight. Uh, this is a problem. What are we going to do? And he'll phone Tony Blair and say, all right, Keir, you know, you don't want to be on the wrong argument on this thing, do you? So Keir comes back in. So we've got to show we support it in a dramatic way. So Deborah Matteson, her this focus group person will say, Keir, the way to do it dramatically, why don't you offer to be the pilot that flies the flight <laughs> to Rwanda? Keir says, brilliant, brilliant. So he goes there and the rolling news all get ready to interview him. He's got his pilot suit on, dressed in a Union Jack. And when people say, you know, Nick Robinson, but Sir Keir, you were always opposed to this thing. As he nobly goes up the steps of the plane, he'll just say, country before party and fly them off. Rishi Sunak will be waving them goodbye. Farage will be in Rwanda, ready to greet them if necessary, naked in a shower. <laughs> and all of the UK will be drunk in a pub excitedly, but that's the same every day, so that won't be different. But you can see how one flight, one flight, um, would mean so much to Sunak, even though, by the way, the polls are very equivocal about the degree to which it would help them. And he's become trapped, as I say, partly through political ineptitude, but also because the Tory party has become close to ungovernable. Now we've explored this before here, so I won't go into much detail, but when you have, much has been said about this as well, so we don't really need to delve deep. When you have five factions on the right, these so-called five families, 
all flexing their muscles or appearing to do so. In the end, they didn't vote against, of course. And you have figures representing them like Suella Braverman. A leader is bound to be in trouble. And Sunak was in trouble really from day one when he appointed Suella Braverman as his home secretary, which he did because he felt he needed to have her in place to win. As we've explored here before, the seeds of a prime minister's rise often bring about their fall. And he was really trapped with Suella Braverman. I was with a, an actress the other day, an actress who played many parts of complexity, like Ophelia in Hamlet and things. And she said, I just cannot work out how I would play Suella Braverman. And I know what she means because she's quite complicated. You know, there she is going on about hate crimes and dreaming about sending these poor sods to Rwanda. And yet she's a Buddhist. I mean, I don't know, you know, it's a bit like, you know, Steve Baker, the Tory assassin, you know, as a devout Christian, he used to go home and pray and say, dear God, give me the power to destroy another Tory leader tomorrow. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. Um, I don't know what she meditates. Give me, give me the power to hate. Give me the, I don't know what her chant is, but there she is, a Buddhist, married to a, a, a devout Jewish Orthodox husband. And, and yet, with a kind of anger. Most lawyers have a capacity for language, which is deft, and, and, and she hasn't. But there we are. She's one of the kind of leaders of this insurrectionary force that makes leadership very difficult. And of course, when you are in that position, you wake up every day, Sunak, who has led the most gilded life so far. You know, Winchester, head boy, Oxford and what was it, Goldman Sachs earning millions, meeting someone who, um, you know, wasn't poor. And um, on it's gone. And actually what gilded path to number 10, he is the only person, and this at first gave him an ebullient self-confidence. He is the only leader to have lost a leadership contest and become prime minister in that, that mad sequence last autumn when he was defeated convincingly by Liz Truss and a month later was prime minister. And when people get that, they think they're special. And on one level, they are. You know, the place is strewn with people who yearn to be prime minister and never get there, and he did, in the most unusual of circumstances. But his confidence has been sapped because you wake up every day thinking, right, what we did yesterday, has that changed the polls? No. And he doesn't rate Keir Starmer. Am I, my personal rating surely must be better than his? No. Although his isn't good, by the way. And so he starts flailing around and crazy things start to happen to him, which feeds on itself. I mean, this autumn was not as dramatic as last autumn where we had the, do you remember Liz Truss? She was prime minister for, <laughs> for a few days. Um, so it wasn't as dramatic as that, but it was in some ways as odd uh, because Sunak, who is, you know, he's, he's he, Oxbridge and soaring up. I mean, he must have an intelligence, but his political strategy was all over the place. So, you know, they took some comfort from keeping that Uxbridge seat. And so he became the motorist friend. And then he went to Manchester and said, I am the change candidate, 30 years of uh, 
basically screw up. It's me now uh, leading the path to change. It's so crude. The focus groups and the opinion polls that paralyse leaders have been telling him that voters want change, so he had to be the change. But he didn't want to just dump on Johnson and Trust because he knew that would ignite Patel dancing with Farage down the corridor at the party conference, so it was, he had to do 30 years. But then he got back and William Hague phoned him up and said, I think, Rishi, you could get David Cameron back. Now, David Cameron was leader during part of that 30 years, and so he, but it didn't matter, he came back. Then all the commentators wrongly said this was a big leap to the centre ground because somehow or other, because David Cameron's so polite and feasible, people think he's on the centre ground when much of his politics is not. There is a divide in the Tory party between those on the economic right like Sunak and Cameron, who believe in international law, and those on the economic right who don't believe in international law either. Um, so Cameron's on that side. Cameron, by the way, appointed Baroness Moan, yes. which at least, whatever you think of him, raises questions about his judgment of character. Um, and isn't it funny how there are all these Dickensian names? Moan, Bone, Peter Bone, do you remember John Berker? Peter Bone! He now might, uh, there might be a by-election in Wellingborough, Blackpool. Consequences being played out all the time, whirling around Sunak as he moves from one desperate attempt to another. In the end for him, I think, and then we'll stop shortly. Uh, it's not midnight. Um, there is only one way he has Back, uh, but the path is not, is, is blocked, frankly, uh, would be the old message of, I've stabilised the economy, me and Jeremy Hunt, um, don't let Labour ruin it, which was, of course, the message in 1992, which John Major used and won against Labour and Neil Kinnock. It's very sad seeing the photos of Glenys Kinnock's funeral the other day, I thought, because... That 1992 election was so traumatic for them. because they, they thought, Neil says now, he didn't think they were ever going to win, but I think he did think they were going to win for a long time. Anyway, that is the only kind of message, but that message is not going to happen. And it's very difficult. It's not 1992. Keir Starmer's office, oh, what if we screw it up and it's 1992? Here are about, there are about 10 reasons why it's not 1992. Here are a few. The only way... Sunak can claim to have been the change candidate, like Major did, is to condemn the way the government was run by Johnson and Truss. But he doesn't feel strong enough to do that. Whereas Major, when he won in November 1990, he immediately appointed Michael Heseltine to deal with Thatcher's totemic policy, the poll tax. Heseltine was against it. And everyone thought, wow, this is different, this is new, this is fresh. That's not available to uh, Rishi Sunak. Starmer is relatively new. Kinnock had been leader for nine years. Starmer did his first two years hidden away because of the lockdown. And so he's new and enigmatic in ways that we'll explore in the second half. Loads of reasons why it's not 1992. We're in this weird place where every Tory MP I bump into, and you probably have conversations similarly with the Tories are absolutely convinced they're going to lose, and some think they're going to be slaughtered. But then you speak to Labour MPs, oh, what if it's 1992? Some must think they're going to bloody win this thing. Um, but it's not uh, yet. 
absolutely clear, certainly in the minds of those Labour people so used to losing. So what we're going to do now, if it's all right with all of you, is take a short break. Uh, then we will collate the questions from those of you on stream and your verdict about Farage. And then we'll take a look at um, Starmer's year and the year ahead for all of us in 2024. And then, as I say, order, order, order. And we'll have some, a wider discussion. And you on the stream can carry on asking questions because they'll be collated in the second half. And Joe, who's out there, will come on the stage in a moment of high drama with your questions. But look, thank you so much for engaging so far. See you in about 10 minutes. Go and have a drink. See you very shortly. Thanks so much. Hello, welcome back, yeah. Oh, thank God you're still here. It's always a nerve wracking moment. I was, a, I was thinking out there, I was at a Bob Dylan concert. He did a Frank Sinatra thing at the Royal Albert Hall. And for the second half, all the audience came back, but Bob Dylan didn't. Um, <laughs> apparently it was already over. Um, and it was in a bad mood. Now, lots to report. Um, while hopefully you were relaxing and recovering and getting ready for um, making sense of the second half. I've got the figures from the stream vote. And I have to say, some brilliant questions. Now, we've only selected a few, if that's OK with you on the stream. But it's, they're of such quality. The Hall Live have really got to raise their game when it comes to question time. So I'm going to try and get through some of these. First of all, their verdict on the prediction. So hold on, I'll just open these pages. Um, will Nigel Farage be leader of the Conservative Party by 2030? Yes, 9%. No, 90%. About the same or maybe a bigger margin saying no out there. Well, he's going to be leader of the Conservative Party <laughs> on the basis of these results. And I'm just going to read a few of the uh, questions before reflecting a bit on what we know about Starmer on potentially the eve of power. So they're, also, they're great questions. John Trainer, I was 16 in 1964. John? Our audience average age, remember, is 20 now. Um, and there seem to be some similarities between now and next year's election. Yeah, I think 64 is an interesting parallel. The Tories have been in power for 13 years. It had been hit by a number of scandals. The Prime Minister had only been in office for a year and was seen as out of touch with the general public. Of course, Labour then got only a majority of four. And such as, as uh, John suggests, such as the... Um, level of expectation at the moment, four would be quite a disappointment, I think, for Starmer, even though that swing would be as big as Blair in 1997. Um, Catherine asks, it was reported at the weekend that the Tories were used the election campaign, and probably actually Catherine, well before, to attack Starmer's record as a human rights lawyer and later as DPP. Do you think that tactic will fly? And if so, what can Labour do to counter it? It's a cliche, all elections are dirty elections on the whole. You know, terrible things are thrown around 
And I think it is true that they're going to do it. They've been looking through his record. And this is one of the mad things we're in at the moment. One of the really impressive things about Starmer is the amount of free work he did as a lawyer. You know, most lawyers earn a fortune. He did a heck of a lot of good causes, free work for nothing, a lot of hard work. I remember saying to him once, why don't you mention it? Because it puts you in a good light. And he said, I'll just be slaughtered because this whole thing about lefty lawyers and so on is so powerful. Um, and it's going to be a big feature, I think, of the election campaign. But Labour will fight back. Do you remember when they put out those ridiculous adverts about Sunak being the rapist's friend? You know, Starmer, I know, got calls from all his lawyer friends saying, this is ridiculous, don't do it, don't do it. But there will be, that will be the kind of counter and Sunak's taxes and everything. Of course, it doesn't address the questions about how you turn this economy round, how you make Britain productive and these terrible public services, how you, but um, I think it will feature heavily. Um, uh, De Debbie Sorkin, Sam Friedman has recently written about the state of public services being even worse than the official figures suggest because of the amount of suppressed hidden demand. If that starts to surface post-election, what should Labour's narrative be if things get worse before they start to get better? Well, Labour will have a honeymoon period if they win. And that will be a crucial period for them because they will have space to do some tricky things. But that mood will turn, I think. And I think they're going to face mountainous challenges. The papers at first will be kind because the editors will know a lot of their readers voted Labour. They will then turn and it's going to get tough, tough, tough because it's such a set of challenges. Nigel mentions Rob Ford of Manchester University. He says the Tories will struggle in the future as a much larger number of people would have been to university and will be more left wing. He expects a big Labour majority at the election. Yeah, it's interesting. So does um, John Curtis from the BBC. I think I've mentioned this at the moment anyway. That's he said on the basis of the polls, he thinks the majority could be bigger than 97. And I feel an intimacy with John Curtis, as I've mentioned here before, that accidentally I shared a sleeper cabin with him. <laughs> Coming back from Glasgow, we both speak here at a Glasgow meeting. I thought he lived in Glasgow. I didn't think I'd see him again. I saw him at the station and my heart sunk, to be honest, because I didn't really want to talk about the swing required in Chester to do, you know. <laughs> Then I found that we had been accidentally booked in the same cabin. And so at four in the morning, so I would say things like, yeah, and what about Rother Valley, John? What, you know, no. um, anyway, so I feel like if John Curtis says a landslide, he, he, you know, three in the morning en route from Glasgow to London, I, we fell in love, actually. Um, <laughs> So other brilliant questions from Louise. Venetia, if Farage is leader of the Tory party in 2030, it will not be the Tory party of today, let alone of 10, 20, 30 years ago. It certainly won't have been the party of 30 years ago. Brilliant questions. Thank you so much. We'd better move on, if that's OK, with all of you on the live stream. But thank you. And keep them coming, because Joe will just walk onto the stage in a moment of drama with some of your questions. Now, if it's OK, before we have questions here in the hall, it's very interesting, you know, this stuff about should Starmer be saying more? Who is Keir Starmer? Do we really know him? And in a way, these questions are not new at all. They are posed of most leaders. And in fact, in some respects, we know 
a bit more, I think, about what Starmer will be like as a prime minister, if he wins, than we did in some ways of Wilson, Thatcher, Blair, and Cameron. We know, for example, that a defining moment in his career was being director of public prosecutions. That is really unusual, as we've explored here before. Um, most people, certainly Labour leaders, are defined by internal battles in the Labour Party. He was defined by that period. We know during that period, he was quite a reformer. He reformed the uh, DPP remit quite effectively. And he's used that to hail reform, this ubiquitous word in British politics. But if you read carefully what he says about reform, um, it doesn't necessarily mean he will follow the reforms of Tony Blair and David Cameron. I know, or certainly knew, uh, that he was quite critical of some of those reforms. So reforms could take a different path. Similarly, it's quite interesting that he is still, and so is Rachel Reeves, committed, although the commitment has been watered down, to big borrowing for their so-called green recovery plan. I don't think that's something Tony Blair and Gordon Brown would have done in 97. For sure, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair in 97 would not have proposed a, in effect, a tax on private schools. Uh, scrapping their charitable status. We know that because David Blunkett, when he was Shadow Education Secretary in the build-up to 1997, went on the BBC to say they would review the charitable status. And when Blair and Brown heard this, well, you know, what are we saying? You know, get hold of Blunkett. Well, you know, and, and immediately poor old Blunkett had to get back on and say, of course we're not reviewing it, the, absolutely we're aspirational. This, this, this situation. Starmer and Rachel Reeves and Bridget Phillipson, the exact opposite. They go on about class a lot, and I don't think they're fans of those private schools. And that tax is in place, and New Labour wouldn't do it. So there are quite a few examples. He's committed Starmer on the basis of his past to quite radical employment rights, which also would not have been a feature of new Labour. But at the same time, some who have known him for a long time are now baffled by him and say things like this to me. A key question with him, Keir Starmer, is, is he manipulating Tony Blair and the Blairites, or is Tony Blair and the Blairites manipulating him? And he's, this person who spoke to me about this said, we won't know until power. And of course, there's a third option, which is he believes that most of what Tony Blair and the Blairites believe. Um, and yet, when he tries some of the Blairite techniques, like his endorsement, semi-endorsement of Margaret Thatcher in the Sunday Telegraph the other day. It's not sort of carried through with conviction. So in the Telegraph, he, it was an absolute Tony Blair thing. So, you know, I admire Margaret Thatcher, actually. And brackets, all of you who voted for Thatcher in the 80s, you can vote for me now. And he was trying to do this with the Sunday Telegraph readership, saying he admired the entrepreneurialship that she unleashed. But actually, he was interviewed the same day on Radio Force Broadcasting House, and he didn't say that. He said, the point I was trying to make was she had a sense of mission and was a political teacher. And I was quite pleased to hear that because I've spoken to him about being a political teacher. As you know, I'm obsessed with leaders who've got to be political teachers. 
Now, that's a wholly different thing to endorsing the mission that she embarked on. And then he was up at the Scottish gala dinner. And in Scotland, she's, you know, a huge problem for Scottish Labour if they think they're all Thatcherite. The SNP will be delighted. But he just, I, I couldn't bear her, couldn't stand her policies. And so when he tries these Blairite tricks, they're not always pulled off with absolute conviction because we're in a different era, but there's no doubt at all. Uh, he speaks to Tony Blair a lot. He speaks to Peter Mandelson a, a lot. There's a WhatsApp group with um, Labour peers, and Peter Mandelson sometimes texts on it, anything you want me to pass on to Keir? You know, <laughs> and all these kind of Labour peers, oh, God, he's back, he's back, he's back. And he is, and as we've discussed here before, there is no doubt that um, when Labour lost the Hartlepool by-election, Keir Starmer heard Peter Manson on the radio saying, there's an obvious lesson for Keir Starmer. Labour, lose, lose, lose. Blair win, Blair win, Blair win, lose, lose, lose. And Starmer said, God, I better phone up Blair. And he's been in touch ever since. But to what impact in power? And similarly with Rachel Reed, she spends a lot of time speaking to Gordon Brown. She spoke a lot to Alistair Darling. She's speaking at Alistair Darling's funeral tomorrow in Edinburgh, an event which theoretically I've got a flight for at about half past five in the morning. Um, and yet Rachel Reeves is quite interesting. She became an MP in 2010. A traumatic moment for the Labour Party. They were out of power for the first time since 1997. And we, that was the first serious leadership contest since 1994. And if you remember, it was the leadership contest of the two Miliband brothers. And Rachel Reeves, uh, it's a big call for a new MP, what you do in those situations. She backed Ed Miliband, not David. I don't think she, although she speaks a lot to Gordon Brown, say so she spoke to a lot to Alistair Darling. I don't think she is a sort of pure... Blairite. So the answer to the question about what Labour would be like in power is that we can see the mountainous challenges, we can see the outline of policies, we can see the influence of new Labour, not least in terms of fiscal rules and economic stability, but we don't really know. And that is an unusual. So looking back to 64, say so parties very rarely change hands in Britain. It's basically run by the Tory party most of the time with the occasional punctuation from Labour. But 64, Labour won. And Harold Wilson, even though he was a much more long-term serving politician than Keir Starmer, was a complete enigma to its, the party, to the public, and to the media, actually. He had begun as very a technocrat, in Attlee's government when he was about 12. He was a genius. And he had a very high-pitched voice and spoke like this and talked about the measures required to recover the economy. And, and he was a technocrat. But then he moved to the left and resigned with an iron Bevan over prescription charges in 1950-51 and was seen as a figure of the left for quite a lot of the 50s. But when he became leader, he very cleverly blurred all these different positions. He appeared to be the future and modernizer, the white heart heat of the technological revolution. His voice had deepened. His confidant, Marcia Williams, 
to put it at its most polite, <laughs> had told him to lighten up and he had become very funny. But a lot of the voters had the memory of this guy as a technocrat. And, they, and no one quite, was he still a Bevanite of the left? Was he this kind of safe, apolitical, light art eat of the technological revolution? Or was he still quite left? He set up a Department of Economic Affairs to challenge the Treasury. He um, put Barbara Castle in at overseas aid as a cabinet post. And people at first thought, oh yeah, he's quite a dynamic figure of the left, but who we can all trust. The newspapers adored him. And then he won a landslide in 66, but then devaluation hit in 67, and he never really recovered. His image, his confidence, and he became a sort of paranoid party manager, although he had a lot to manage. Um, and so, who was he in 1964? Did people really know who he was? Now, fast forward to the next uh, change of government in a big way, Thatcher. Now, I think probably voters did know quite a lot about her, but it's very interesting. You know, the BBC every now and again put out the election night programme as live. It's the weirdest thing. If you haven't seen it, you should watch next time they do it because it's really weird. You see this live drama unfolding and you as a viewer are in the privileged position of knowing what happened next. And so in 79, it was the era of kind of men only on these programmes. They had all the political commentators of that era. Peter Jenkins, Alan Watkins, they were all smoking, Robin Day, all smoking away. And it's fascinating. So, you know, they all realised you had won. And, and the, these geniuses were all saying, we don't really know what kind of government she's going to lead and who she will be. And quite a few said, well, I'm sure she will be in power for a couple of years and then Willie Whitelaw will take over, uh, far more accomplished than her. And this is all kind of happening on election night. And of course, she became this transformative leader of a revolution that we're living through to this very day. One of the reasons, incidentally, if you want to have a critique of the current day, you shouldn't be praising her because we are still living through her Britain in many, many ways. But the, it wasn't fully clear. And she hadn't, of course, decided wholly on the course. She had about monetarism. You know, my father never spent more than he earned in his shop in Grantham, and a country can't earn more than it spends. Um, but none of the privatizations, which have become kind of the defining, lasting theme of her leadership, still very much in place, triumphantly cleaning our water and making our trains run on time and all the rest of it. So this is it, you know, if you praise her, how do you then analyze what's gone wrong with those services? Anyway. It wasn't clear. Uh, and she was, by the late 70s, a crusading voice, but still the shape of her leadership. Barbara Castle once said of her, power made her beautiful. Now, what she meant by that is, they didn't know in advance of 79 whether she would be a disaster as a leader. Now, you could disagree with her policies, as Barbara Castle did, but it kind of worked. The crown was placed on her, and she won election after election after election. But we didn't know that in advance. Many people thought Whitelaw would take over or one of the others. So that was her. Then we move on, uh, the next one to come in from opposition, Blair. And 
you know, the, the blare of opposition was quite hard to read in many ways. Uh, it was certainly kind of very cautious and incremental. He once said in 1996 to Claire Short, who was on the left of his shadow cabinet, he said, look, Claire, you know, when we're in power, right, we'll be a lot more radical than before power. And Claire Short probably rightly said to herself, what he means is we'll be much more right wing in power than we are now. <laughs> but anyway, what was not clear on a very positive front was the degree to which they would find the space to revive the public services, which they did, and the inner cities, which improved considerably over that period. But if you look at what he was saying in 97, there was no space for any of this stuff. We're going to keep to the Tories' spending plans, keep to the Tories' tax plans. And, um, and he wasn't wholly sure of who he was in 19. He'd never been in power. Like Starmer. Well, Starmer's run an office, but not one from uh, the House of Commons. And so he evolved, although I have to say Iraq, which many people see as an aberration uh, in Tony Blair's political philosophy, I think was absolutely a, a route that you can measure from day one. But that's another story. Um, and then Cameron. He, he, Cameron was a sort of not as good an actor, but he was an actor and, and he convinced many people that he was going to be this great, compassionate, modernising reformer. You know, uh, my passion copying Blair, my passion can be summed up in three, we, I don't need three words, three letters, N, H, S, huge cheers. As he was making that speech, Andrew Lansley, his shadow health secretary, was preparing for, in effect, a kind of dismantling of the N, H, S, but no one chose to notice. They saw this very plausible, charming man with a very plausible, charming shadow chancellor. And they thought they were going to be figures who transformed the Tory party and the country in a, in, in a way that they didn't when in power. So Starmer is an enigma. Being an enigma in opposition in many ways is an advantage. You don't want to be too fully defined. But the tests will come if he wins, and some will think, you know, my uh, partner John Curtis and others, that uh, he will win big. And if he wins big, that will help him. There's no doubt at all. If you have a big majority, things become easier. Small majority, things become problematic. And there are all kinds of routes, and we don't know which they'll take. I'll just say this about a kind of warning, um, and then we'll open it up. It might be a triumph in power. We just don't know. I think the warning is what happened to Heath in 1970. Heath was quite a sort of awkward public performer, but won a very decent majority. Uh, deeply experienced, more experienced than Keir Starmer. Bit of a reformer as a minister. And he was just overwhelmed by the huge challenges he faced. Then it was kind of industrial turmoil, oil prices quadrupled. And he was out within three and a half years. Now, that's, I'm not saying it's going to happen. But unless you have a firm sense of what you want to do and how you're going to do it, he was right about Thatcher. That, those were her strengths. She knew what she wanted to do. Um, God, can you be blown away in these current traumatic, dramatic situations, both internally and across the world, and say, if Trump gets back in, just one question will be on the Prime Minister's index. You know, what the hell do you do about Ukraine if Trump's back in? 
Um, God knows what hell will be played out in the Middle East. Foreign affairs, which never feature big in a general election, always become huge for prime ministers. They've never really thought about it. But there's no doubt at all if the NHS doesn't improve fast, as one of the questioners on the stream has asked. I think the honeymoon will be kind of challenged quite quickly. But anyway, look, those are a few thoughts about uh, the coming year. Now, if it's okay with all of you, order, order, order. Oh, here's Joe with the questions from the stream. Thank you very much. Joe, running the whole evening with Dan and others. Yeah, well, I'll read some out from the stream in a minute, but would anyone like to raise any points that we've covered here or uh, elsewhere? Let's, let's start at the front and then go over there. Uh, so can you start speaking and the mic will... Oh, the mic is coming. Okay. What do I think the last by-election is going to be? I haven't a bloody clue, actually. Uh, what do you think? Um, well, I think it depends, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it's May, he has to announce it in March. So it's not very far away. And, and, and election fee... Do you mind just handing the mic over? Thanks. And thank you so much for uh, coming. I see there are others from... Yeah, the, the same event in the summer, which is brilliant. Um, yeah, uh, he has to call it in March if he wants to go in May. And the thing is, you, as a prime minister, it's a great privilege to be able to hold these elections, decide when but you can lose control of the narrative very quickly. So the first Sunday back on January the 7th, Sunak's on Laura Koonsberg's programme, and he'll probably be on that Sky Breakfast programme on Sunday morning. And they'll both say to him, uh, will you call a May election? And I know Sunak's answer will be, I'm not thinking about elections, which is not true. Um, <laughs> I'm just concentrating on delivery. Now, unless there's more stuff in these interviews, a lot of the papers will say Sunak doesn't rule out May election. And then they get Labour's reaction, we're ready for May, we've got our manifesto ready. And suddenly there's fever around May. Now, this is what happened to Gordon Brown in October, in the autumn of 2007, when he had sort of half decided to call an election and let the speculation grow, and then he didn't. And the situation is even worse. So one way he could end up calling it is just, just loses control of the narrative and wanting to avoid these bloody by-elections, which for him are a total nightmare because they sap confidence if Labour gain these seats as they might. Oh, yeah, over there. Oh, this is the legendary Christian Woolmer. Um, I'm just going to put you on the spot. Though. Let's see. Uh, get Brexit done, won the last election. What slogan should Labour have? Right. Um, God, these questions. Uh, what do you? I know what I'm going to do. I don't know. What do you think? My dad was a tool maker. Did, yeah, did you know Kiss Starmer's dad was a tool maker? I feel I was his dad. I feel. What do you think, Christian? That's the best bit of news Sunak's had all evening, I think. Britain, I think that it's very hard. I remember in uh, 2005, you know, the third Labour election since they've been in power, 97, 2005, they couldn't think of a bloody slogan, like I can't, to be honest. Um, and they came up. Do you remember what it was in 2005? 
forward, not back. <laughs> you know, forward to where, back to, you know, it's, they, they are all pretty kind of desperate things, actually. Um, so I, I don't know, but it... it has anyone got one? Has anyone got It can't get any worse. Yeah. <laughs> Make Britain great again. Yeah. That has a that, that worked in America once, didn't it? I mean, you could My, my mother was a nurse. <laughs> yeah. No, I think my father was a tool maker is the is the one. Yeah. Yeah. You've got one. We, we, he's already got one. We're going to get your future back for you. Oh, yeah, we're going to get your future back. Quite sort of clumsy contortion, isn't it? Get your future back. Um, I know what they're playing with, take back control. Um, they're sort of trying to play with that. It is bloody difficult, these things. Get Britain back on track. Britain back on track. That means they'll have to sort the railways out, Christian. <laughs> Um, yeah, now I, I might come back to you, but I just want to get other people in who haven't asked anything. Um, any more? Uh, let's go to the front and then uh, uh, over here. Yeah, it's an interesting question because the, the, there's a pattern to this 13 years, and it is uh, one prime minister after another trying to appease the Tory right. Um, Cameron? That's why there was a referendum. Yeah. Theresa May, we know what happened uh, to her. Um, well, Liz Truss, yeah. Um, uh, Johnson too. He, Johnson never knew who he was um, for, uh, in reasons that I say a fascinating psychological study. Um, but actually, uh, in many ways, he wasn't of the right. You know, some people say Johnson, you know, some commentators say Johnson, another leap to the right. But Johnson, if you remember, was the big spender who wanted a levy for social care, who uh, instigated the HS2 uh, big spending, who wanted to spend on levelling up. And his falling out with Sunak was over money, you know, because he kept on saying, oh, where's the money for levelling? I'm, 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 not, I'm not spending it. My job is to balance the books. Um, and so, but Johnson ended up kind of wooing Rees Mogg, Nads Doris, you know, Nads, Nads, go out and support me, you know. And he ended up with a sort of wild right. Um, and, yeah, which ends up getting all of them in trouble. Poor old May spent half her life with these people, inviting them to checkers, inviting them to number 10, and they destroyed her. Um, Johnson is no longer even an MP, and Sunak is now in the same position. And it's an interesting question. They are far more insurrectionary. So, you know, the One Nation lot, so-called, are so polite and nice, you know. Uh, so Damien Green came out on Tuesday and said, uh, our lawyers have looked at this and they're extremely worried and therefore we declare we will give it our full support. Um, <laughs> and they are much more malleable, whereas you had that Marc Francois holding a press conference outside Westminster, all the cameras looking at me, right, okay, I'll just tell you, we're minded to vote against this, loving every second of it. And I think the right have become so insurrectionary that Tory leaders are terrified of them. And until that dynamic changes, you're absolutely 
Right. Now, the other factor is Farage. I, I mean, I'm becoming obsessed with Farage as well. I think I'm fancy him as well. I'm just obsessed with Farage. Um, with, with, with the shower. I've got this image of him in the shower, which will haunt me for many years to come. But it's so interesting. See, Johnson um, was so scared that the Brexit party would slaughter, split the Tory vote. He wooed Farage. Uh, Cameron was so scared that people would defect to UKIP that he gave Farage the referendum. So that's another factor. Whereas this, these one nation lot, you know, do you remember in the autumn of 2019, uh, Johnson expelled loads of them? You know, people like Nicholas Soames, Oliver Letwin, Philip Hammond. I mean, these aren't known revolutionary figures from the One Nation, but they all kind of politely accepted it. Whereas this other lot are fighting around the clock, you know, and bring down leaders. I think it's about that. Do you think the public generally supports these more hard right wing Tories? No, no, the polling evidence doesn't suggest that, but the papers do, you know, so they've got, you know, these papers, it's very odd. People don't buy them anymore, but they remain powerful. Um, the Mail, the Telegraph, the Times, actually, the Sun, the Express. And, you know, I was thinking when Johnson appeared in front of the COVID inquiry, if that had been, say, if Corbyn had won, and that had been Corbyn, those papers would be absolutely... So, and Blair and Brown, you know. By the end, Blair, who's quite adored by parts of the media now, he, his final speech as Prime Minister was about the feral beast. Oh, and, but, and they adore these people. The Daily Mail, after Swella Bradman made a mad speech at the Tory conference, put Quentin Letts on the front page saying, I've just experienced a sort of Shakespearean speech of such great eloquence. And so that's another factor, I think, in their potency. Uh, but, sorry. Balcony. Balcony. Oh, Balcony. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Shout out. Yeah. Uh, so, can you explain my scepticism about this term, reform? Uh, you know, every public figure believes in reform or else they wouldn't be in politics. They want to change things. So, a passionate reformer was Jeremy Corbyn. He would have nationalised the whole of the GP service, as far as I understand. For example, that's a reform. Now, you can agree or disagree with it. But in the British media, the word reform is treated in itself as a kind of revelatory gospel, you know. And it started with uh, Tony Blair, who, when he was having his battles with Gordon Brown, very cleverly juxtaposed the dilemma as this, reform versus anti-reform. And it used to drive Brown bonkers, because he said, well, I, I want reform as well, I just don't want his reform. And so kind of, you know, bloody Milburn and blah, 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 blah. And he used to get, but he never found a juxtaposition to challenge it. And then Cameron came in and did the same thing. Uh, we're carrying on with Tony's reforms, and you either back us or you're anti-reform. And so there is a view that reform means kind of Cameron's reforms, uh, some of Tony Blair's reforms, full stop, whereas actually the, you know, all kinds of ways of reforming. And you see where, if you listen very carefully to Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, and even actually Wes Streeting, they do all hail reform in the NHS, and I think there will be reforms. Um, but whether they develop the reforms of Blair Cameron, I'm not so sure. You know, if, they, if the private sector, for example, 
Keir Starmer rightly says, we've got a capacity crisis, we'll use the private sector to address the capacity crisis. Not much more. And actually, quite a senior shadow cabinet person said they didn't think Keir and Rachel wanted to develop those kind of Blair reforms. Now, Wes Streeting is from that Blairite wing, but follow his pronouncements carefully. He's got a series of quite interesting ideas. Anyway, so that's my caution about reform. Whenever, so Keir Starmer's very clever. He says, reform's gonna have to do a lot of heavy lifting. And that gets him a great editorial in the Times. Keir Starmer shows he's growing up by backing reform. And you know, well, what kind of reform? So that's my problem with it. And thank you for letting me explain it. Um, yeah, I can't, I, I can't see the, yeah, what about over on this side? If the South American dictatorship was to invade a Commonwealth country and a region 10 months before an election, could that be helpful? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is where we're going to really delve deep because one of the great myths, I think, of the Thatcher era is that the Falklands War led to the 1983 landslides. So the Falklands happened in 1982, and she won a landslide in 83. I don't think that was by any means the reason for the landslide. It changed her. She became more magisterial after the Falklands, and kept on referring to Winston, you know, who she never met. She said, oh yes, I know what Winston would have done, and oh, she never met Winston. How does she, you know, calling him by his first name. And if you remember, she attended loads of victory celebrations and, um, and it kind of, it gave her this magisterial pomp, but she was already gonna win that election uh, because the key thing that happened uh, had happened a year before when uh, the split happened with the Labour Party. And when the Labour Party split, there was only gonna be one electoral winner in the short term. Now, obviously, who knows what would have happened if the SDP had uh, continued in some form, if Roy Jenkins had gone on with David Owen, who knows what would have happened, but it didn't work. And so she kind of sensed it as well. She was a good reader of political space. And it was in 1981 that she became very brave with the internal dynamics of the Tory party. Before then, uh, she had been really cautious, more cautious than Keir Starmer, who's appointed a cabinet that he shadow cabinet with an absolute ruthlessness. She had loads of her internal critics in the government, but in the September 1981, long before the Falklands, she sacked them, the wets as they were called, and brought in Norman Tebbit, you know, get on your bike and all this kind of thing. Because I think she sensed that Labour couldn't win. And if Labour couldn't win, she was worried for a time about the SDP, who had this extraordinary honeymoon for a period of time. But I think she sensed then that even though she was at the time deeply unpopular, she was going to win. And it wasn't the Falklands. But if, I don't know, if Sunak invaded where? Mongolia? Where, where, where could he invade? I don't know. Maybe he could, maybe he could invade Rwanda with the... <laughs> And then, and then declare Rwanda safe because he was running it and he had removed the regime. God, we're going mad. Um, now, look, I'm just going to quickly, if it's okay, read out some of the questions from the stream, if I can find them. Here's, here's some. So thank you for sending them in on the, uh, those of you who are streaming. Just going to do a couple. Uh, 
Sue, are there no reasonable conservatives that could select a seemingly more acceptable leader like Kemi Badenoch? <laughs> well, Sue, there's quite a lot of assumptions in that question. Um, there are some who uh, would love to dump Sunak now, uh, actually, and put in Kemi Badenoch. You're absolutely right to raise it. Um, but it's that classic thing that people have faith in people um, who have not been tested properly. It's happening too much in British politics. And she, she's become the sort of media darling and the darling of parts of the Tory party without any real, she hasn't been around for very long. But I tell you this, that after the election, if they lose, many think she will be the leader of the Tory party, that she'll come through you know, uh, Braverman will stand, the Pritzker will stand, uh, who else, uh, Penny Morden. <laughs> Mainly women, actually, maybe Che Guevara thinks he's gonna be leader, uh, Jenrick, Honest Bob Jenrick, uh, who knows? Um, but I think she might be the leader afterwards, but God, is she untested. Let's just, if you don't mind, I'll just do one more from the stream because we're running out of time. Assuming Labour wins, Craig, uh, do the Tories automatically elect a right-winger to replace Sunak? If so, who? If you don't mind, Craig, we've just talked about that. Probably a right-winger. Maybe Kemi Bednot, but don't forget sexy Nigel Farage in the shower, um, intoxicating Tory party members and causing marriage crises and all sorts. Uh, Tudor and Bren in Amsterdam, what's the chance of a Tory wipeout at the 2024 election? And what part will the Lib Dems and SNP play? Uh, thanks for mentioning that Tudor and Bren in Amsterdam because um, they are two of the wild cards. You know, things look pretty solid. You know, Labour 20 points ahead at the beginning of 2023, Labour ahead at the end of 2023. There are two wild cards, I think. Partly it is what happens in those blue wall seats where the Lib Dems kind of make big gains there and in the southwest of England, in which case they are buggered, the Tories, because you're in that 1997 pincer movement. We just don't know. The by-election suggests that will happen, and it terrifies the Tory party that that might happen. And Scotland is the other wild card. Scottish Labour could do quite well in Scotland for the first time for a long time, in which case Keir Starmer's route back to number 10 is secured. Um, but we don't know for sure. The polls are really interesting. The SNP is really in crisis. You know, the, the fall of Salmon, the fall of Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, she's writing her memoirs with... Um, we share the same agent, although I think she got a better fee for her <laughs> memoir, um, trying to find out how much she got. Um, and he, he tells me it's really good, and she's a good writer. So I said, will you tell me or show me a bit? And he said, oh yeah, look at this, this will blow your mind. So I read, I thought, Jesus, this is unbelievable she's written that. And I can't tell you, any of you, what it was. <laughs> um, so they've had that, and then they've had a new SNP First Minister who has struggled understandably with the context and following these two, and Alex Salmond is back. He's a, he's a much more substantial figure than Nigel Farage, but he's now leading another party kind of in a Farage-esque way, and, and we just don't know. They've got a good Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sawa, and... It was quite interesting when they gained that seat in Rutherglen, I think it was, in the by-election. Keir Starmer was up all the time in the constituency. He basically lived there, moved house. His children started going to school in Rutherglen. <laughs> and he wrote this piece for the Scotsman, which was really interesting because the SNP were attacking him from the left. So he had to come at them 
from the left. And that's when I, I read a piece like, yeah. So who, again, who is he? Because he was talking about smashing the class ceiling and class. I think he mentioned his father was a tool maker. <laughs> um, so you mentioned two wild cards. We just don't know. So that means the next year is going to be wild and there will be an election. There will probably be a change of government. So hopefully we can all gather again soon to make sense of it. Indeed, we can, because the next time there's a live show here is March the 26th. The tickets went on sale tonight and March the 26th we'll have had this budget. And if there's a May election, the campaign will have started. And if there isn't, we know it's going to be October, and that's enough time for Christian and I to work out a slogan for Keir Starmer, <laughs> and enough time for us all to make sense of what will be a changed landscape. Um, but just to conclude tonight on our Christmas special, I think we have managed to make sense of everything that <laughs> happened in 2023, and are beginning to dare to look ahead to the wilds of 2024. Oh yeah, and one of the questions is, of course, will 2024 be a turning point in British politics? And by a strange coincidence, <laughs> I've written this book <laughs> on turning points in um, Britain since 1945, and it delves deeper than we've been able to do tonight because it goes back to 45 to the present day and makes sense of it all. And by another weird coincidence, with Christmas looming, I'll be signing the books outside. And there'll be a brilliant Christmas present to yourselves, to your friends, to your family, and even more to those who you hate. Um, because you can just say, you're not interested in politics, so here's a book. Um, but anyway, one way or another, I'll be out doing that. And for all of you tonight on the stream and in here, you've all been brilliant. Thanks so much for engaging. Have a brilliant Christmas. And here's to gathering in 2024 to make sense of it all. Thanks so much. You've been brilliant. Thank you.